Well, good morning, and thank you all for your prayers during that time, and also your prayers throughout the week. Uh, Lord knows I need it, and we need it, and, but again, I, I thank you for uh, your care for us as, as a church so far, and I, um, well, I anticipate it's going to continue to go as well, but we, we thank you. Um, now, I think it's a fight that every married couple has had. By every married couple, I mean besides us, of course. Your, your pastor and his wife don't fight. Um, that would be really embarrassing. But it's a fight that most of you all have probably had if you've been married for some time. You, um, but it goes something like this, and perhaps the roles would be reversed or the details might differ, but, you know, one of the spouse, say, you know, the wife feeling a little unloved, unappreciated, underwhelmed uh, by this marriage might blurt out something like, do you really love me? And the husband incredulously responds, of course I love you. What are you even talking about? And then she might reply, well, I just, I just don't really feel like I know that you care about me. And then what does the husband do? Well, he goes into the list, the list of all the things I do. I go to a job that I hate every day. I make coffee. I mow the lawn. I, I you know, spend hours setting up and decorating all your, you know, your things. I, I accomplish all the things on the honeydew list. I do all these things. How can you say and turn to me and ask, do I love you? Of course I do. And she unsatisfied with that answer, and perhaps doesn't necessarily know what needs to be done, but does know that things aren't to her liking, that there's something missing, that she wants more. And at an impasse, not necessarily knowing what the way forward is, they may you know, give some suggestions. Here's a couple more things that you might be able to do. And he may agree, or he may say, I don't think so. Um, but, you know, what is clear is, you know, at some level, there's a dissatisfaction with what's happening. And whether they can articulate what the solution is or not, the dissatisfaction remains. Despite all the things that are done and the, the little things that are left undone, well, more is needed, more is de- demanded, if you will, for this thing to move forward. Now, last week, we began this, this journey through what's been called the Ark narrative in 1 Samuel, um, where you know, we, we take a, a look at, well, how the Ark of God, you know, the Ark of God ha- takes central place in the story in 1 Samuel 4 through 6. And we saw, well, try to ignore it. I'm trying to power through. <laughs> I don't know if you at home can hear, but there is a, a beeping, like the alarm is going off and I still don't want to wake up. So, you know, we talked about last week how God is untamable, like whatever's beeping, um, cannot be tamed, cannot be managed, cannot be put under control, whether a remote control or our control, um, that, that God has his own will. He cannot be coerced or manipulated to do what we please. Uh, and he has revealed that, you know, as we took this journey with him, in, you know, in the ark, right? Israel, they suffered a defeat. 
uh, at the hand of their arch nemeses, the Philistines. They got crushed, obliterated, and they, they had this brilliant idea. Well, you know what we need? Well, we need God's presence here. Then he'll do what we want. So they go to Shiloh. They pick up the ark. They bring it beforehand. And, you know, they're all excited. Like, hey, listen, God's here. We're going to win. But God was there, but they didn't win. They suffered a great defeat at the hands of their enemies, and the ark of God was captured. That God suffered shame in order to keep, prevent his people from having this, uh, well, a relationship with him that wasn't right. And the next question you may ask, and it's a good question to ask, is, well, if this God cannot be coerced or manipulated to do what we want, can he at least be satisfied with us? And the answer to that question is both good news and bad news. The good news is this. Yes, God can be satisfied. And yes, good news continued, unlike our conversations with our spouse, or your conversations with your spouses, where you don't necessarily know the right way forward, God is crystal clear on what he desires, what will satisfy him, what will bring resolution and peace between his people and him. The bad news is the content of what he requires. So if you would, turn with me in your, in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 4 as we continue on uh, in, this, uh, in this saga. Right? Remember, the, the ark was captured. Israel's defeated. And we come to this, this place in uh, chapter, or chapter 4, verse 12. If you have one of the Pew Bibles that's in front of you, it's on page 278 if you want to follow along with us here or you can read on the screen. So we're going to start at, at verse 12. So that same day... A Benjaminite ran from the battle line, and he went to Shiloh with his clothes torn, dust on his head. And when he arrived, Eli was sitting there in his chair by the side of the road, watching, because his heart feared for the ark of God. And when the man entered the town and told what had happened, the whole town sent up a cry. Eli heard the outcry and asked, What's the meaning of this uproar? The man hurried over to Eli, who was 98 years old and whose eyes had failed so he could not see. And he told Eli, I've just come from the battle line. I fled from it this very day. Eli asked, what happened, my son? And the man brought the news, replied, Israel fled before the Philistines and the army has suffered heavy losses. And your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God had been captured. And when he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died, for he's an old man and he was heavy, for he had led Israel 40 years. Now, since we jumped into this narrative last week at the beginning of the chapter rather than at the beginning of the book, you may be tempted to read this little account as just a just-so account of the things that happened, right? Israel defeated, was defeated. Hophni and Phinehas died, the ark was captured, Eli heard the news, had an accident, and, and he died. And surely, at times, bad things just happen, right? Men die in battle all the time. The elderly and the non-elderly, for that matter, have accidents, some of which are fatal. 
This could just be a just-so account of what's happened, but if you began at the beginning of the book, you would realize, well, this isn't a just-so event of the facts of the matter. This is the down payment, the the first installment of God's judgment against the house of Eli. Eli, the high priest, the one meant to represent the people before God and to represent God before the people, despite, in many ways, having devotion to the things of God, a care and concern for the things of God, a conviction over the the, godly morals, despite all these things, God's judgment fell upon him. With him, God was unsatisfied. His devotion was not enough. His service was unsatisfactory. More was required by God. And if you've been around the church for a while, if you've heard the term the gospel enough, we may be in danger here. We may be too quick to run to the Romans' road, too quick to, to appeal to you know, how a person is justified before God, where we miss the very demand of God on the life of his people. What made Eli's service and devotion and affections and feelings towards God, what made them unsatisfactory? Well, for that, we have to go back a page. So turn back in your Bibles a page to 1 Samuel chapter 2. And while I'd like to have read, be able to read the whole chapter, I um, am trying to shorten it up so that it doesn't become uh, too laborious for you all. And then I have go too long and everyone gets mad at me. So uh, we are going to start at verse 27. So now a man of God, he came to Eli and he said to him, This is what the Lord says. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your ancestors' family when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? I chose your ancestor out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod in my presence. I gave your ancestors' family all the food offerings presented by the Israelites. Why do you, you all, Scorn my sacrifice and offerings that I prescribe for my dwelling? And why do you honor your sons more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice part of every offering made by my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised the members of your family would minister before me forever, but now the Lord declares, far be it from me. Those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me, will be disdained. The time is coming when I will cut short your strength and the strength of your priestly house so that no one in it will reach, my, reach old age and you will see distress in my dwelling. Although good will be done in Israel, no one in your family line will ever reach old age. Every one of you that I do not cut off from serving at my altar, I will spare only to destroy your sight and sap your strength and all your descendants will die in the prime of life. And what happens to your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, will be assigned to you. They will both die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his priestly house and they will minister before my anointed one always 
then everyone left in your family line will come and bow down before him for a piece of silver and a loaf of bread and plead, appoint for me some priestly office so I can have some food to eat. What strikes me about this passage and the accusing word of God as it comes to Eli is, well, it seems like at first glance it may be coming to the wrong person. Now, if you read the whole story and you, and you read all the things that Eli's house had done, you would perhaps be outraged at his sons. His children, who, you know, the, the text says in verse 12 of chapter 2, are scoundrels or son, worthless people. Sons of Belial is the, is the Hebrew, which is basically, you know, they were just the worst yeah, they're serving as, as priests for the people of God, meaning to represent God to his people, but rather than receiving the grace and acting accordingly to that, well, they did evil. Right? The God who revealed himself to their family, well, they did not know him, it says. They were chosen to be set apart, to be holy before the Lord, and yet what they're seen doing is profaning the, very, the holy places of God, Sleeping with women at the entrance of the tent of, of meeting. Sleeping with, with women, not their wives, in the holy place. Profaning what is holy. And while God gave them this gift to be able to consume and eat with the sacrifices, to eat meat on a regular basis, which was well, a pretty big privilege back you know, 3,000 years ago where, where seldom did people get eat more than a couple times a year. But they got to eat it often. But rather than be content with that, well, they ate the things that, that God had said, those are mine and mine alone. Like the first priest, Adam, who's given all the, you know, the, the whole garden to eat from except for one tree. Well, they were given all the sacrifices except for the Lord's portion. Yet, and yet, it was not enough. But Eli wasn't a scoundrel. Wasn't like that. He, he, was, he was seen rebuking his sons. He was seen caring for the people of you know, the things of God, caring for even the, the people of God. And yet, when we hear the Lord's judgment, it is not against his sons only, it is against him. He and his devotion was unsatisfying to God. As we met him this morning in the first text that we read, as he's sitting at the gate, what does it say about him? It says he's sitting there fearing for the ark of God as it's in battle, right? He, he cares about God's stuff. It's not just some show he's putting on. It's not just like some display. Like we get this glimpse, you get to see behind the veil of his heart and at the veil of his heart is, guess what? He is fearing for the things of God. He's concerned about them. That's a good thing. And also, what we, what we see is when his sons are acting out, he, he rebukes them. He says, listen, you shouldn't behave this way. So what was his problem? Why was God's judgment come not just to his children, but to him and to his house? Well, we see that. Chapter 2, verse 29b. Why do you honor your sons more than me? That's the complaint. 
Why do you honor your children, your sons, more than me? I don't know if you've ever experienced the sting of when, you know, you were given less priority than you thought that you might deserve. But it can sting. You know, 14 years ago when uh, Liz and I were about to get married, uh, well, we had no money, like none. Um, I was still doing my, you know, finishing up my undergrad. She was working at, you know, in, in daycare. And, and we just, well, had almost nothing to our, to our name. And so, you know, we were, we, what we wanted to do for our wedding dinner was to order some pizzas. But apparently that just seemed too... Uh, uh, trashy, maybe, would be the right word. <laughs> so we got some bad catering, which was way less delicious than pizza and way more expensive. Uh, but we had to find some people to help the caterers, some, some workers. And we could have pay, paid professional caterers, but we didn't have the money for it. So we had this brilliant idea Well, that, you know, we had spent time helping out with in the youth group, and we knew some, you know, young teenage kids that were fairly responsible and we'd be able to kind of co-op them into helping, you know, just like move dishes around, collect plates, you know, things of that nature. We say, hey, listen, we can pay them, pay them fairly well, and it's still way less than professional caterers, you know, and we'll get the job done and save money that we don't have to spend. And so I called up one, one of them and, you know, he agreed, he liked the wages, he liked the work, it sounds like a great plan, Good deal. And he said, hey, listen, uh, I have this other friend. He, he'd be great with you, too. He'd be a great worker. Um, and so I forget if he called them or I called them. But either way, the friend enthusiastically agreed, yeah, I, I will absolutely you know, help out. I'd, I'd love to do it. And so this was set up you know, weeks in advance. And then you know, the day before my wedding, after I get home from our rehearsal dinner, it's probably 8 o'clock-ish, I get a phone call from the one kid's dad saying, hey, my son can't help you out tomorrow. Really? Why not? He has a baseball game. <laughs> like one that's been scheduled? Yeah, one that's been scheduled. But you know what? I, we thought it might rain, and so it wasn't going to be a problem. So as the weather's clearing up, uh, sorry. And then he gives this line that still bugs me to this day. You know, school comes first. It's like, that's not... It's a baseball game. It's not school. Uh, but, and, it, <laughs> um, and so, in, you know, in shock and disbelief, I said, okay. You know, and, you know, the, so the day before my wedding is he's, you know, set to, to help us out. And then he cancels because, well, well, there's a baseball game that he has to go to. And that, you know, despite what his personal feelings may have been towards me, I don't think he had any animosity. But it kind of felt like hatred. I don't think he intended necessarily disrespect, but how can it not be perceived that way? Yeah. That the things that were important, and you know, I guess would say the, the things that I saw as, as key and essential, yet he viewed them as low priority. And despite whatever his true feelings were towards me or to the event or anything, anything of that nature, what he communicated was, well, it's pretty low down on my list. And it's hard not to take offense to such a thing like that. 
And as we come to Eli, what we see is, yeah, despite his affections and his feelings towards God and the things of God, and despite his uh, you know, uh, convictions about what is right and true and good, yet yeah, at the end of the day, you honor your sons above me, is the accusation, is the judgment of God. And so it's not just to his sons, it's to him, to his house, that the judgment of God comes. There's a, a certain segment of, of the Christian faith that, that views that, you know, that we are justified by our feelings rather than by faith in Jesus. And by feelings, what we mean is, well, I have, I have good emotions, good affections towards God and the things of God. I appreciate church. I love the music. I like to meet. And you know what I most like most of all? I don't know if you do them around here. Potlucks. I heard a, a, a few mm-hmms which say, good. I'm glad you guys like potlucks because I love them. All right. But we can like the things of God. We can, and we can have warm affections towards you know, the, the God of the scriptures. And we can even enjoy and believe and hold fast to the convictions of the scriptures. And yet, and yet, the judgment of God, the accusing word of God can come to us and say, you honor this above me. You've missed it. That we serve a God who is unsatisfied with anything less than the entirety of our hearts. Perhaps it's unreasonable. Perhaps it, it seems audacious that God would come into our lives and say, I want it all. Nothing withheld. Not even your sons. Not even your spouse. Not even your children or your parents. That he comes and he asserts himself and says, listen, if you want, just as Jesus does, if anyone would want to come after me, he has to, he can't love his mother or sister or brother or parents or sons more than me. If anyone does, they're not worthy of me. There's a, a fairly common movie trope where, you know, and especially with like family movies where the, uh, the, the key pivotal moment is when normally it's the dad realizes that family is more important than his work and occupation, right? Like, you can probably think of a dozen movies right now. You know, the, the one I, you know, that immediately came to mind was Elf, uh, you know, where it's just like, you know, the Will Ferrell's character, you know, the son of some, you know, book salesman successful in New York City, and, you know, he comes to this pitiful moment at the end where, you know, he's run away, he's sad and lost, and his dad has to give this presentation or he's going to get fired, and, you know, his other son comes in and says, hey, we got to go look for buddy. And he says, yes, I got this. He's like, and it's like do or die moment. You know, am I going to choose family or am I going to choose work? And because it's a Christmas miracle, well, he chooses family. Family first. However, certain jobs, certain roles, certain responsibilities, family does not come first. It might seem quite noble for the book of executive to say, I'm willing to get fired to go look for my lost son. 
It seems way less noble if the President of the United States is approached by some of, you know, some of his aides and says, listen, there is, you know, our embassy in the Sudan is under attack. ISIS has gained control and they're threatening a, a, a nuclear attack on Los Angeles. And he says, listen, it sounds important, but you know, it's my kid's 15th birthday party. Family first. Some roles supersede even that of family. And Eli, as the high priest, as he's standing there, you know, he has this role. He is there. He is rep- like the president who represents our nation. He's representing the nation before God. And he's representing to the nation the holiness and the righteousness and the, of, of God to the people. And so God says, listen, this is your role. This is what's owed. There's a weight to that role that supersedes even family, even the deepest of our filial connections. And God says, I take precedence. And we may say, well, I understand that. You know, it's the high priest, you know, the, the, the bridge between, you know, the people of God and, and God himself until we realize that the weight that God has placed upon his people. You are a royal priesthood. You are the ones. If you, if you have met Jesus, if you've been saved and sanctified by Christ himself, guess what? You have been ushered into this new role where you stand between the world and God, representing the world to God and representing God to the world. And with that calling, with that declaration of who you are comes a weight and a responsibility that God comes first, even before family. That, that God demands nothing less and will be satisfied with nothing less than our whole heart. There's a form of Christianity that's become more and more pervasive today that seeks to say to the people of God that such devotion would never be required by God. That your love for, for family, that your love for your partner or your spouse, that your love for your parents or someone else, or your love for the things that you hold most dear, well, God would never interfere with such a thing. God is a God of love after all. That only an unloving God would say no to that kind of love. But this is not the God of the scriptures, is it? This is not the God who comes to Eli and says, you have honored your sons above me. Not because you participated in their behavior per se, but because you did not stop them. Yes, you may not have been able to coax them to love righteousness, but you could stop them from you know, doing it as priests. But you have honored them above me. You have loved them more than you have loved me. And for this, your house has come under judgment. And so as God comes and he says, listen, even more than your love for your, your sons and your children, you must love me. Even more than your honor for, it, for them, you must honor me. But what The assertion of God is that all things, if he's going to take 
If he's going to take you know, precedence over that of a, a parent to a child, he's going to take precedence over every aspect of our lives. He demands all of us. Nothing withheld. Nothing is able to escape his demands. And if it does, well, guess what? With us, he is unsatisfied. And that's the bad news. <laughs> right? The good news is, listen, he makes it clear what he demands. He makes it clear what he requires. But the bad news is, what he requires is everything. Everything. That is the, that is the bad news of the scriptures again and again. Because that's exactly what we can't do, is it? Can we love God with our whole heart, soul, and mind and strength? Can we give up every aspect of our lives? Can we put every single nook and cranny and crevice under his rule and authority? Can we satisfy God? Well, in the flesh, we cannot do that, can we? And as hard as I try, as hard as I will, as hard as I desire to please God, yet at some level I'm going to find some part of my life that well, refuses to submit and wield to his awesome power. And so the gospel proclaims to us a few things. That what we could not do in Christ we can receive. That for us who could not love God as he deserves... That we could not love God as he requires, yet as God gives us his son, well, that we can be accepted. But it doesn't stop there either. That in the son, we receive a promise. That God is going to do a work in the lives of his people. That what we could not do in the flesh, what we could not do with our will, what we could not do as hard as we try, that God will do in his people through the son. That the promise of a faithful priest to Eli, that one who would do all that's in his heart and mind, yes, that is, that is, uh, well, that is fulfilled in, in Samuel and in Kings, but it points forward to another priest. The fullness of a priest for the people of God. One who, whom Ezekiel proclaimed. In Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel gives this promise to the people of God who, who have been living in exile, embittered and broken, unable to fulfill all that God had required of them. And he gives them this hope, this promise of a new people who would emerge. And what does he say in verse 24? Well, I'm going to take you out of the nations. I will gather you from the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. Right? It's this priestly act. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a new... I'm, I am going to be your priest and I'm going to cleanse you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from your impurities and from your idols. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'm going to put in you. I'm going to remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you to move you to follow my decrees, to be careful to keep my laws. 
That the salvation of God extends not only to the forgiveness of our sins, but for the, the giving power to the people of God to do what in the flesh we could not do, to love God with our whole hearts and our whole souls and our whole minds and all of our strength. That what God has required to satisfy him, he provides in his son through the spirit of God. And so this morning, as we, um, if the Lord has been speaking to you about, about the things that you've held in your life, that you have not let submit to his rule and reign, that you have honored above him in a very practical way, I say, listen, there is hope that the Spirit of God is powerful, that the Spirit of God can not only cleanse and forgive for such a thing, but it can empower the people of God to live in holiness. And as we view the, the demands of God on our life, we, we see God is, well, That the, the demand of God to honor him above our own children, it comes from the God who has given his own son that we might be his. It doesn't go to the selfish God demanding all that, all that we can give without giving back. It goes to a God who has already given all that he has. What more can heaven give but the son? What more can God give to his people to demonstrate his own love and care and faithfulness but the giving of the Son to us? What more can he offer? What more can he supply? So this morning as we prepare to take communion and we participate in Christ in his life and death and resurrection, we come to a God who has given all that he has for us. And the response of grace is to give ourselves back to him. And so today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as Israel did in the wilderness. Do not close yourself off from the working of God to say, this needs to be mine today. So come, confess, repent, and rejoice. For God wants to do a work in his people today. Amen? I'll invite Dave up. Kind Father, we, uh, we come as the people of God uh, needing and, uh, needy and broken. And Holy Spirit, we ask that um, even now that you reveal to us all that you, all that you want to lay claim to. We don't want to be like Eli. We don't want to spurn your grace by holding things back from you. We desire to give you all, that we would truly be your people and you are God. For your glory of your name we pray. And in the name of Jesus we, we say, amen.